adoptees, friends and family of adoptees, welcome to The Rambler. I am your host, Mike McDonald. If this is your first time joining us, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate that. This is a show that explores and I interview and have conversations with people who are internationally or transracially adopted, for the most part, for the most part, I will say I uh, wouldn't mind in the future getting some people on the show that happen to be maybe experts in adoption, or if you were like uh, the writer for Sterling Brown's character, Randall, and This Is Us, I would like to hear from you too. I don't know if you're ever going to hear this, but if anybody knows that guy, let, him, let me know. Let me know. I want to watch that. I mean, I watch it. I watch it. I watch the show. That's a weird thing to say. I want to watch that. I I am watching it. I'm watching the show, and I'm pleasantly surprised. And uh, I would like to talk to the person who who wrote it or maybe consults on that show. That sounds pretty cool. Huh? I would like that. I wouldn't mind that. Who else? Who else would I like to interview in future episodes of the show? Uh, Joel Kim Booster, who's a uh, stand-up comedian. He's a cool guy. I wouldn't mind talking to uh, Jenna Ushkowitz, who was on Glee for a number of years, and she's on Broadway and Waitress the Musical right now, among other projects. Who else? Who else? Uh, There's a lot. There's a lot of people out there. Angela Tucker, for instance, uh, maybe she would come on the show. I know she's doing a web series right now, and she has a Netflix film called Closure. Uh, Dan, a.k.a. Dan, if you're out there listening, uh, you're invited. Anybody, really. I mean, I'm throwing out big names and everything like that, but but look, if you would like to be a guest on the show, please just send me an email at therambleradhd at gmail.com. Send me a tweet at therambleradhd or follow my Facebook, like my Facebook. Send me a message at facebook.com slash therambleradhd. You hear all about this every week. This is for the new people. This is for the newbies out there. Listen, this week, who's my guest? My guest is Jenny Town. Jenny Town uh, is an amazing person. She's a Korean adoptee. And she is the uh, lead editor behind 38 North. If you haven't heard of that website, it is awesome. That's like awesome, but even better because it's, uh, I say it weird. Uh, she also works at the U.S. Korea Institute at SAIS, which is pretty awesome as well. We're going to go to 38 North right now. I'm checking it out. 38north.org. That's 38, the numerals, north.org. And it is for uh, informed analysis on, on North Korea. Or as it's sometimes called, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Let me let me give you a little hint here. If you got democratic and peoples in the title of your country, sometimes it leads me to think that it's neither of those things. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Uh, anyways, funny funny story about this is that actually Jenny Town and 38 North. I don't know if you're aware of this. They were on um, Wired this morning. I logged into Wired. It's one of my favorite. Uh, news magazine outlets for tech usually, but sometimes they do other cool stuff. And today they were showing that they have really awesome uh, 3D spatial imagery, not spatial like space, but like 3D, three-dimensional Toy Story-esque, you know, CGI imagery of like North Korea's new, I think it's Space Center or something like that. The Oh, here it is. The Sohei Satellite Panorama of Facilities at Sohei. Anyways, it made Wired today, which was awesome. But it's also, their their source there is 38 North. And so you get to hear a little bit from uh, from Jenny Town today, who uh, runs the site over there, among other things. And uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So, so we're going to get right into that in a second. How are you? How are you guys? Are you running right now? Are you on the treadmill? Are you taking a walk? Are you walking the dogs? Are you just enjoying this at work somewhere? Are you just avoiding... Your family at the holidays. This is the holiday season. 
All right. And uh, it's going to be Christmas and Hanukkah soon and uh, soon New Year's and, and a bunch of other holidays, I'm sure, out there that I'm, I'm unaware of. But if you're celebrating, then, then go celebrate. Go celebrate with your family. And uh, I hope you enjoy yourselves. Listen, this is going to be the last episode for the year. For the year. We've completed almost a year of Rambler episodes. Is that the most insane thing you've ever heard in your life? That is crazy. That is bonkers. This is the 48th episode of the show. I obviously took maybe four weeks off, I guess. Uh, This goes out weekly, usually on Sundays, although lately I've been very lazy about it. It's been going out on Mondays, and I'm very sorry. Uh, But, you know, I've been busy. The holiday season especially is is busy. So, so, you know, listen, uh, what was the other thing I'm supposed to announce today? Oh, yeah, AKA is actually having Jenny Town for a forum uh, here in New York sometime in the spring. So be on the lookout for that. You can follow also known as Inc. on Twitter at also known as Inc. Uh, just go to also known as org. You can find out more information there and uh, keep in touch. Keep in touch with that organization for more information on where to find Jenny Town in the future when she's in town here in New York City. Uh, I mean, I'm not physically in New York City right now. I'm in New City, New York, which is it's a lot like New York City for anybody who's been up here, uh, just so you're aware, uh, except absolutely not. In any case, uh, I've taken up the majority of this intro, and I haven't even talked about any cool movies or music or TV shows. Well, I'll save that for afterwards. Let's just get to the interview with Jenny Town. You guys enjoy. All right? Enjoy. So you're back in New York from D.C. So wait, did you fly in from China to D.C., just like drop off a bag, pack some clothes in another bag, and come up to New York? No, there was three days. So I got back from China on Sunday evening, and then, yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, had meetings all day, so I didn't have enough time to unpack. I just took stuff from one uh, suitcase, put it in the smaller one to come up here, and... uh, (laughs) Yeah, packed on the morning of in panic, like oh, I I gotta go. I'm <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, well, that's very exciting. So uh, we're here in the Starwood Preferred Guests Element Hotel. I've never heard of the Element, but it's like a W. Or... It, yeah, it's the same family as like Westons and Ws. Yeah, um, but I think it's the more eco-friendly one. So everything here is very like. Is it like sustainable, renewable, yeah, green? Yeah, green energy kind of hotel where wow. it's like low flow stuff and high energy lights and things like that. Yeah, this is a nice hotel room. This is like a mini apartment. They have yeah. like you have like a stove top <laughs> over here and like and a microwave and a. Like half fridge. Yeah. This is nice. But it's kind of like my own apartment where the fridge is empty and the microwave <laughs> I use like once a month. <laughs> so you were just telling me a hilarious story about how you pretty much forgot where you lived when you got yeah. back to DC. <laughs> yeah. No, like I've been, so one time when I was on the road for like a month, I got back and like all the trees had bloomed while I was gone. And so uh-huh. I walked past my apartment building because I didn't recognize it. And I was thinking, I live around here somewhere, but I couldn't figure out where. <laughs> <laughs> 
How long did it take you to figure out where you lived? Um, it took me a while. It took me about five minutes to realize I had already walked past my apartment. Uh huh. And then when I walked back, I still looked at it like this doesn't look right, but the key fit. So. Oh, so you made it. So you made it into <laughs> so the apartment. I made it home. <laughs> Once I got upstairs, everything looked okay. But from the outside, it looked weird. So when you say on the road, people are gonna think you're like a musician or uh, something. <laughs> No, so, it's not that glamorous. <laughs> it's pretty glamorous, it sounds like, because you get to travel all over the world. I, I mean, I see your Instagram. You're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like, every time I think you're in some place, you're in another place, like, immediately after that. Yeah. Like, these days, yeah, I'm traveling a lot, but it's not as glamorous as it sounds because it's all work-related. Right. And so most of the time, I have, like you know, half an, half a day where I'm not in meetings, where then you have to make these strategic choices. Like I could either sleep or, you know, like try and go to the gym or, you know, like catch up on some work because I'm always mm-hmm. behind now or, you know, or like the idea of, hey, I've been in this country now for, you know, 30 hours and I haven't left the hotel yet. Maybe I should walk around a little bit. <laughs> Do you end up going back to like the same places and stay at the same hotels? So you're like, they're almost like mini homes in each different country. So the countries that I go to the most often, I try and stay in the same place so that, so that it is less familiar. Yeah. Um, so like when I'm in Korea, I go to Korea now maybe four or five times a year for work. Wow. I try and stay at the Westin, which is why I have so many SPG points. (laughs) (laughs) So. so you can stay at the Element for freezes. Exactly. In New York. Exactly. <laughs> and this is a great location yeah. here in Hell's Kitchen. It's good. Well, and I, I like this. Uh, so there's Element and then there's a Double Tree, the Hilton by, a Double Tree by Hilton down mm-hmm. the street, like a block over. And I try and stay in one of these two in order to use points. And, and so it's still within walking distance of the train station. Yeah. It was very easy to walk up here from Penn. Yeah. <laughs> And then, yeah, it's not too far from, like, Port Authority, right, stuff right. like that. So it's a great location. Yeah. Good choice. Good choice, Jenny. I'm, I'm getting good at this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you come to New York often? I mean, Korea four or five times a year. That's a lot. Um, so, you know, I, I used to live in New York. I lived in New York for a couple of years. Um, but And when I first moved back to D.C., I used to come to New York probably at least once a month. Mm-hmm. These days, I just don't have time. I'm not even in the country once a month sometimes. That's crazy. Um, so I, I think I'm in New York, though, probably about three or four times a year also. Yeah. yeah. So, like, this last trip you went to China, where else were you? On I was this, actually in Geneva first. Okay, so you went to Geneva first. Yeah. So Geneva for about five days, and then mm-hmm. Shanghai for three days, then Beijing for three days, and then back to D.C., for three days, and then I came here. <laughs> for so that, three days. <laughs> that actually is a shorter trip than I thought, because you're, like, on the road well, for a while. But I had only been back in D.C. for about a week and a half. Before that. Before, before that. And the trip before that, I was uh, I was in Korea, but I was in Gyeongju. And so it was actually... I couldn't take the direct flight because the timing didn't work out. So I had mm. to do a connecting flight through... Um, LA the first time and then San Francisco on the way back so by time you do a connecting flight you get to Incheon you take the train from Incheon down to Gyeongju it's about a 30 hour transit yeah Um, and I was on the ground for 30 hours and then I was back like on the train on my way back up to Incheon and and 
back. It took me about 35 hours to get back. And then I ended up having to do... I got back at probably midnight by the time I got home. Uh And then I had to get up early because I was giving a speech the next morning. (laughs) Um, But my flight... I had a connecting flight originally through LA on the way back that was delayed by seven hours. So I would have missed my LA connection. Right. And so I was like, no, I, I have to get back. And in the meantime, I was texting my um, my assistant saying, you might have to give my speech tomorrow because <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to make it. Is she like prepared to do those kinds of things? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can send you my PowerPoint, but uh, I'm not sure I will be there. What was the speech on? Um, North Korea's nuclear program and sort of the, wow. uh, the uh, geopolitical implications for the region. <laughs> mm, mm. So, like, pretty easy stuff for an assistant to take care right, of right, and you know, brief or it's all in the slides. Present. <laughs> Who was the presentation to? Um, so it was to a group called Asia America Forum, mm-hmm. and it, it's actually it's a it's mostly a bunch of retired, uh, you know, like foreign service officers and things, especially those that who worked on Asia issues um, mm-hmm. when they were in government, kind of thing. So. But the audience, it, there was about 60 people who showed up, um, and apparently... That's a good number. Yeah. It was a, it was actually a good discussion, um, and I, I powered through. So you made it. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> just barely. I was super hungover through most of the transit, but well, I, I made yeah. it. So is that is that how you kind of get through the all the jet lag and everything like that because 35 hours of travel to do a 30 hour stay across the world and then 35 hours back well on top of that's that it's got to screw with your body clock i had only been in dc for a week right. before going to korea cuz i had just been in where where was i before that what month was that where, uh, where maybe like December, october November, october October, I was in Korea for something, and then I was in China also. Mm-hmm. So, like, this trip, I just got back from China. That was my third time in China since July. It's a lot of China. It's a lot of China. Like, I've never been to China so much in my life. I usually go maybe every other year. Um, Do you stay at the same place? Are they, like, used to you now in China? Um, so there's a group of people that keep inviting me back, but so... In July, I actually spoke at Renmin University at a conference at Renmin University in Beijing. Um, and then in October, I was in Wuhan at Wuhan University. Mm-hmm. And then this last round, I actually was at Fudan University in Shanghai um, leading a seminar of like young, young scholars, um, like a U.S.-China dialogue on Korea issues with young scholars. Um, and then we did the Fudan University portion, and then we went to Beijing at the China Foreign Affairs University. Wow. So it's always kind of different actors, but there's kind of a central group of people that know of me and know of, like, 38 North, my website and yeah. stuff. So they continue to invite me whenever I can get a visa to go to China, which is the hardest part of getting to China. I bet. How many flags come up when your name gets through customs? They're like, wait, why have you been to all these different places so often? 
Well, these days I have global entry, so I don't have to talk to actual people. Oh, nice. But, um, like, when I tried to get my visa for the July meeting in Beijing, it was no problem. Mm-hmm. And then the October meeting, they asked so many questions and kept rejecting my application. Like, no, we need to have verification of employment and oh, we need to submit, like, a job description. Like, why are you going to China? I was like... I'm sorry, they invited me. <laughs> Do you have, like, the invitation? It was like, yeah. it's official, it's no, right here. No, I already submitted the invitation so they could see exactly why I was going to Wuhan. <laughs> and they still asked for, like, all of these things. And so this time, when I when I applied, I guess I made it past whatever round of scrutiny um, uh-huh. was the October version. And so then they gave me a 10-year um, tourist visa. I was like, nice. Score. So you don't have to do any of that. Right. Right. Hullaboo anymore. Right. So now the Chinese expect me to come back more often. <laughs> like, the, like the professors already know. They're like, yeah. oh, we heard about your yeah, yeah, tourist yeah. visa. Exactly. <laughs> so when are you coming back? Yeah. So, wait, so we're, we're going to... People... Is, are all these talks on, like, North Korea and the nuclear program and all this stuff, or is that all different kinds of things about North Korea? It's... It's usually, when I'm in China, it's it's mainly talking about North Korea. Um, but I, I sort of cover a range of issues on both North and South Korea and U.S.-Korea mm-hmm. relations. Um, I, we've also done a lot of work looking at sort of U.S.-South Korea alliance issues, both in terms of the bilateral relationship, but also U.S.-Korea alliance in cooperation on global issues. Like, mm-hmm. um, we've done some work on educational development in Southeast Asia, um, we've done a lot of work looking at sort of um, U.S.-South Korea leadership on nuclear security issues, um, you know, as being one of the hosts of the Nuclear Security Summit in 2012. Mm-hmm. And so, and especially as South Korea, for instance, um, becomes like a global exporter of nuclear reactors, um, you know, we've been helping them build capacity to be able to do more leadership and outreach, especially to their... Um, to their clients. Um, so, you know, countries in the Middle East and Southeast Asia hmm. that are buying reactors and trying to develop a nuclear energy industry, you know, we're trying to help the Koreans take the lead in trying to promote good um, nuclear security, nuclear safety, safeguard right. standards in these regions. Yeah. Don't need, like, some kind of nuclear meltdown in right. somewhere in Southeast Asia. Well, and especially, you know, because these are areas where there is a lot of political instability right there's a high uh, you know high tendency towards terrorism to begin with and so you know part of the nuclear security summit process was really trying to highlight the need for greater nuclear security standards in order to protect nuclear materials and physical materials and radiological sources so that they can't be stolen or sabotaged and made into Mm -hmm. you know like dirty bombs and stuff yeah that would not be good right right. (laughs) (laughs) and so but you wouldn't the Chinese, like, have a good handle on what North Korea is doing better than the United States? Well, yes and no. Um, you know, the, there's certainly a lot of Chinese scholars and officials. They have a much closer, much more open relationship. Right. Um, but they still don't have full Nobody has full picture mm. of everything that's going on. And, um, you know, the North Korea still wants to have a relationship with the United States as well. And so there are things that they're more willing to talk to Americans about than the Chinese, you know, and and the North Koreans have always been very Mm. good at sort of 
um, playing big power politics as well. They don't want to be too dependent on any one country or too close to any one country. Um, so that they do try and look for opportunities to create, you know, to to make sure that they're not completely dependent. So they even keep China at arm's length distance? Because my impression was always like they were very proud to have such a close relationship with China. Is that not the case? That's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure, like I said, they, they know they have bilateral relationships and treaties with China. And uh-huh. China is their main sort of protector. Right. Um, and pretty much their only ally. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, when like, when like when relations, for instance, in the U.S. and Russia are not good, then Russia-North Korea relations improve, mm-hmm. um, which opens also an opportunity to play you know Russia against China in sort of loyalties sure. as well. So, like I said, they're very good at this whole game because they've been doing it for centuries, right? Korea's always right. had to do this and play the powers off of each other. Yeah. So when did you start this website, 38 North? Um, we started in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really an answer to... There was, just, there was sort of an emergence at that time of some other kind of blogs uh, that were you know, kind of purporting to be experts, and there was a lot of news. This was especially at a time you know, post-2008 when Kim Jong-il uh, had his stroke. And so from 2008 to 2010, there was all this speculation of, like, regime collapse and what happens if, you know, they didn't have a successor yet and mm-hmm. contingency planning and just a lot of sensationalist reporting. And, um, you know, North Korea is one of those countries where, because it's difficult to get information, yeah. um, people have sort of a low standards um, a low bar of expertise mm-hmm. and they're they're willing to accept a low bar of expertise and so what we've been trying to do is raise that bar yeah um, and really kind of give voice to some of the more seasoned experts and p- professionals that have been working on these issues either with North Koreans or in North Korea um, or you know academically rigorous study on North Korea for like decades mm-hmm. um, because these are the people that also don't talk in talking points right. And sound bites, and so oftentimes, you know, they're much more cautious, they hedge more, and so in mainstream media especially, they weren't getting heard, and Mm -hmm. so instead they were, you know, interviewing people with very kind of minimal knowledge um, on very serious issues. Right. And so you got, like, all of these kind of crazy stories and theories and analysis that weren't very useful, and so Mm -hmm. what we've been trying to do is really inject more... Um, informed analysis into the dis- public discussion. Yeah. So how many people do you have kind of working on all these issues with you? Mm. So our working staff is really only about two people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we manage, I'm the managing editor and producer. Um, my research assistant is also our basically assistant editor. Um, and Joel Witt, Joel and I founded the the website together, and so he still does, he's part of our editorial kind of committee as well, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, a little portion of his time, a little portion of my time, um, we're just sort of hyper-functional, <laughs> um, but, you know, we work with, it's basically, you know, like, our experts are not in-house experts, mm-hmm. we commission, you know, and we, we have several contributors and so I think you know overall we've had maybe over 70 people contribute to this oh, wow. over the years yeah it's solid yeah and I think there's you know a good couple two dozen maybe that we kind of are go-to people on different issues They're like regulars 
Yeah. Or resident experts on certain aspects of yeah, North so, like, Korea. We know, you know, we know who our rocket scientists are. We know who <laughs> our like economists are. Mm-hmm. You know, so we know when certain things happen, we want, you know, some commentary from this person and this person, and then other people will submit as well, and we kind of evaluate depending on like argumentation and mm-hmm. and sourcing and things like that. Sure. Yeah. So how like. How often do you bring those experts with you over to different countries to do presentations and talk with officials and everything else? Um, We try to fairly regularly. Again, some of it's budget dependent. Right. (laughs) Um, Some of it's, you know, like we we definitely will recommend different people um, for different conferences if if we're asked and consulted. Uh, So we do try and get them. We also try and, you know, promote them and their articles on our website through the media as well so that they have more exposure so that, Mm -hmm. you know, so that when there are questions, you know, the the go-to people tend to expand into, again, a higher bar of expertise. Yeah. That's awesome that you're getting, like, the actual experts in there and not, like, somebody who says they're an expert, but it's really just, like... Like a freelance writer. Right, yeah. yeah. Are there a lot of those out there? Just, like, rando freelance... So-called experts on North Korea. Meanwhile, they've never, like, left the United States or anything. Yeah. There's tons of people. Because, you know, North Korea is one of those fun, sort of, fun topics, right? Because, again, it's never really a, like, concrete anything. Mm -hmm. You can speculate on a lot of stuff. It's a little nebulous. Yeah. And you could be right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, but, you know, what we try and do is, again, the people that have more exposure and experience to give to get their views on things um, to help sort of steer the conversation in a more useful way. Yeah. So when did you start kind of gaining traction with 38 North as a website? Um, so we, we, well, when we started, it was a very small operation. Right. Where we used to only actually publish about one article every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I would say we're not a blog because we're sort of blog format um, mm-hmm. because it's, it was easier to set it up that way. Yeah. Um, but everything that we post has been edited um, before it's published. So it's not like just random thoughts going up um, mm-hmm. whenever we feel like writing. And it's not Joel and I writing. You know, we've commissioned pieces and we have contributors. Um, so when we started, we used to publish about one article every two weeks. And then, you know, we tried to kind of push for at least one per week. Uh, but we didn't really get a lot of attention until we started adding the satellite imagery analysis mm. as a feature. We did that, actually. Um, our first piece was in December 2011. Um, but So we were set up to do it, uh, luckily, in early 2012. And we happened to um, be watching the Sohei Satellite Launching Station, North Korea's main satellite launching um, facility. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to catch early signs of a satellite launch preparation leading up to their April 2012 launch wow. on the 100th birthday of Kim Il-sung. And so when we published that piece, that's really what put us on the map mm-hmm. um, to a broader audience. And people started then to take more uh, attention to our other work as well. Hmm. That was really what that was really our like big selling big ticket item was our satellite imagery analysis. So that's kind of like the foothold in the door. Yeah. How did you get the satellite imagery? <laughs> well, it's commercial satellite imagery, so uh-huh. anyone can buy it. You just look through the public catalogs of the different mm-hmm. satellite companies. Um, so we basically, we look through the public catalogs daily um, for specific areas that we're watching and try and, you know, 
purchase as much as we can to keep monitoring the site's progress mm-hmm. and what's going on and see if we can see signs of, you know, not only looking for signs of suspicious activity, but also, you know, really just kind of reporting on what's happening there. Huh. Is that kind of like one of the main ways into North Korea is this public satellite imagery in terms of like monitoring what's happening yeah. in the country? Yeah, especially the sensitive areas, obviously, like Yongbyon, the scientific research, the nuclear scientific research center where they have the nuclear reactors, for instance. Um, the last time Americans were able to um, tour those facilities was 2010. Mm-hmm. So other than that, like it's been closed off to foreign, especially to Western yeah. um, eyes. And so, you know, in order to better understand what's happening there, um, you know, satellite imagery is all we have, basically. Has a lot changed since 2010 from the satellite oh, pictures yeah. there? Oh, yeah. Has it been, is it like building up? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, since 2010, um, so in 2010, uh, the, they were, the group that went in there to investigate or to, to see what was happening, um, mm-hmm. the North Koreans were showing them that they had just built a uranium enrichment facility. Okay. And so after that, that was when they closed down Yongbyon to outside um, visitors um, and outside inspectors and stuff. So then um, in 2013... Uh, North Korea restarted its 5-megawatt reactor, which is a plutonium production reactor. Hmm. So when it's in full operation, it can produce up to 6 kilograms of plutonium per year, which is roughly equivalent to about 1 bomb's worth per year um, if it's running at full capacity. And so, you know, this was the reactor that was shut down in the 90s under the agreed framework. Um, So it didn't restart until 2013. And so we watched... Um, for signs that it's running to try and figure mm-hmm. out, you know, how much fizzle material are they actually producing in order to have an idea of what kind of stockpiles they might have. Um, we've also seen, for instance, in the um, uranium enrichment facility, the original um, centrifuge hall was built for about 2,000 centrifuges, um, which is, uh, again, if it's running at full capacity, I forget exactly how much like the equivalent of to how much um, that makes. But what we've seen is that in 2015, they doubled the size of the building. So we don't know exactly what's in the other part of the mm-hmm. building, but we would assume since that's the centrifuge hall, that if they've doubled the size of the centrifuge hall, they've probably... Doubled the capacity. Yeah. So, you know, these are the things that we watch for, again, as kind of signs of where their program is going. Jenny, this sounds like some spy James Bond <laughs> shit. <laughs> like, no, are you contacted you know? by, like, agencies across the globe? <laughs> like, what's happening? Jenny Talon, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, like, uh, the definitely, like, the governments, different governments and stuff are also, you know, reading 38 North. Everything mm-hmm. we do is open source. We don't have any, you know, secret intelligence or anything. Um, you know, and we, we try not to draw too many conclusions, more of just sort of reporting on observational yeah. goings on of the satellite imagery. Right. But you've been invited and you've gone to North Korea a few times now. Just once. Just once? Yeah. I thought it was multiple times. No, just no. one time. So, like, I, I also participate in a lot of track two diplomacy. So I meet with North Korean officials probably about once a year. Okay. Um, you know, in an unofficial capacity, uh-huh. you know, to have discussions about you know, the state of U.S.-North Korea relations and, 
kind of try and help clear up any misperceptions on either side and, you know, brainstorm ways in which this could, um, if there's windows of opportunity in order to help improve U.S.-North Korea relations, uh-huh. and what would have to, what would kind of push us in that direction on either side. Um, but I've only been to North Korea once in 2011. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of things, like, what do they... Like, what do they want to know about about the U.S. and everything, about how to improve relations? And You know, um, obviously, there's, there's still room for, you know, resuming diplomatic relations down the road. Uh-huh. But, uh, they can't do it under curtains, curtain, under, cert, under the current situation. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, a lot of what we talk about is really, like, what would it take um, to create the environment that the governments could resume discussion. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're track two sort of informal um, diplomacy. Right. Track one is government-to-government diplomacy. Sure. So our job is really, we go there kind of trying to talk to them about what would it take to get back to create an environment where track one diplomacy could resume. Mm-hmm. I was living in Indonesia. They had an Iranian embassy there and a North Korean embassy yeah. there. And I was always like, what are they... Like, what do they think when they go to the other, these other countries? Like, what do the North Korean officials in the UK, like, think when they go to to England? <laughs> I mean, you know, they're, they're not as isolated as what people think. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, when you're talking about government officials and, and foreign ministry. Like, they're, they're very knowledgeable. Sure. You know, what these other countries are like and kind of what their mission is in being there and trying to, you know create a, a presence there mm-hmm. um but yeah it's uh certainly there there are better posts than others <laughs> yeah I, I can imagine <laughs> well it's like they must have an embassy in like china for instance and that probably can't be too bad yeah they have a huge mission in uh in beijing yeah mm. and that's like so it's funny to me because china is like this quasi-communist capitalist state with, like, a weirdly growing middle class. And then you look at North Korea, which is, like, old-style, like, Soviet communism. But it, it's changed a lot. I mean, it, it's not the North Korea that existed in the 90s. It's mm. a very different country now in terms of the socioeconomic climate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the economy is doing relatively well, and especially, and I say relatively, of course, it's underperforming compared to... Well, it's relative to Asian North countries. Korea. Yeah. yeah, but year-on-year growth, you know, the, the economy is expanding, <clears throat> it's growing, business is growing, you're mm. seeing a lot more, you know, market activity. The markets are basically sanctioned now. It's not all black markets. There's some, you know, officially sanctioned markets there, you know, there's a lot of quasi-private business and enterprise popping up. There's a lot more kind of services popping up, service industries popping up. And so you're seeing now that, you know, there is a, a growing kind of moneyed class. I would, I don't know if you'd really call it middle class, but there's a growing moneyed class. Mm-hmm. And people are much more um, familiar with money. And uh, there's a lot more disposable income. And because there's Mm. more disposable income, you're starting to see kind of changing values in terms of um, there's much people are are looking more for kind of status symbols and, and, you know, things that like when Kim Jong-un first 
came to power, for instance, um, he was building a lot of fun parks and amusement parks and things, and people yeah. were criticizing him a lot for doing this. But at the same time, in society, people have disposable income now, and they want to spend it on something. And they want to go to the fun park. They want to do stuff, you know, like go to the zoo, go to the mm-hmm. aquariums, go to the fun parks and the circus, and, and, you know, they have, like, gyms now where you pay membership fees. And Really? Yeah. So, you know, it's it, the culture is definitely changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think people give it enough credit as to what it is. You know, it isn't this stark Stalinist state it once was. Hmm. Um, it's it's very much on the track of becoming a much more modern culture. Um, and and that pace has accelerated in the Kim Jong-un era. Um, and so we'll see kind of how he deals with that going forward. So he doesn't see this as like a source of instability or capitalist evil or any of that kind of jingoistic stuff that we see on the TV? Uh, you know, it's hard to say exactly uh, what, how he's really approaching this. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's too early to tell. Um, but so far, you know, he, he understands that the economy is moving and that people, there is, um, the people are more savvy now about money and wealth and wealth generation. And, you know, he has promised to, you know, focus on economic development. So this is part of his Byungjin policy is that there's, you know, the building a credible nuclear deterrent against the United States as well as building the economy. Um, and so it's a simultaneous development plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but simultaneous doesn't mean both parts equally. So sometimes if the environment is, uh, if the political environment is uh, not good, then they're going to focus more resources on the nuclear deterrent. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was a peaceful environment, they could focus more resources on the economy. Fun parks. Um, but not just fun parks, but yeah. business, you know, and, sure. and really growing, growing, uh, helping improve the lives of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's said this over and over, that this is one of his, his policy goals, is mm-hmm. to help, you know, increase the livelihood and improve the livelihood of the people. So what was your impression on your trip to North Korea of the country? Um, so I was there in 2011, December 2011. And so it was uh, two weeks before Kim Jong-il died. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, it was not as bad as I thought it would be. Uh, but we were also there, again, as a track two mission. Right. Um, So, you know, we didn't have the typical touristy experience uh, because, you know, we already had a relationship with our North Korean counterparts. Mm -hmm. And so they treat us very well. They, you know, for the most part, they sort of know why we're there. They kind of trust us within, you know, certain parameters. So we had a, it was a good experience overall. It was just cold (laughs) because it was December in Mm -hmm. Pyongyang. Yeah. but yeah, it was, it was good to be there and see it. And I've been to, you know, several countries now. And I I feel like in terms of at least kind of infrastructure and everything, it, it, it was much better than what people give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what would you like compare it to? Is there a comparable city to Pyongyang that you've been to? Well, the city, like I said, now is much different right. than when I was there even. So when I was there, it was sort of on the verge of becoming more... What it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know... I would say 
it's yeah I'm not sure there's there's definitely parts of it that still have a very kind of Soviet influence mm -hmm. in terms of kind of architecture and feel yeah well you're not going to get rid of that unless yeah. you demo it right? <laughs> <laughs> and so there there are you know definitely other like post-Soviet countries that mm -hmm. have a similar feel to them like when sure. I spend uh, Eastern Bloc states yeah or, or like Mongolia for instance I've mm -hmm. been in Mongolia a couple times a year for the past couple years yeah and Ulaanbaatar, to me, reminds me of Pyongyang in some ways, and yet the characteristically they're very different at the same time. Yeah, yeah. But it, you know, they're they're definitely kind of reminiscent elements that that you can see. Kind you of still feel the there. old Soviet grasp yeah, over the countries. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so and then we're gonna shift now and focus a little bit more on you personally, <laughs> if sure. that's okay. Sure. And you yourself are a Korean adoptee. Yes. And were you born in Seoul? Pusan. Pusan. All right. So we were neighbors because I was born in Masan. Oh. Yeah. We're southern people. Southern people. <laughs> True southerners. Yeah. <laughs> and then at what age did you come to the U.S.? I was adopted when I was three. Three? Mm -hmm. Do you have any early memories of Korea at all? I have just like a couple that, you know, growing up, I didn't know they were memories mm. um, until I went back to Korea and went back to my orphanage. Like I, I remember the orphanage kind mm -hmm. of building. Um, I remember just a few scenes here and there, um, but not, not a lot, a lot. Like what? Just like people running around doing stuff? Um, I remember, I remember, yeah, the, the building, I remember kind of the, the location and looking out on the sea. Um, I remember, uh, I think on the U.S. side, there was one time I was, you know, like in the, they were like finalizing adoption papers or something, signing something. Mm. Um, so yeah, just kind of snippets here and there. Mm -hmm. And then where did you end up coming when you got to the U.S.? Uh, I was sent to Minnesota. 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 Land of a gazillion adoptees. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Which part of Minnesota did you end up growing up in? In the woods. In the woods. Up north. <laughs> <laughs> in a very small town in sort of north central Minnesota. Oh, oh yeah? Which one? Uh, Park Rapids. That sounds vaguely familiar. So if you find where the Mississippi River starts, uh -huh. the headwaters of the Mississippi River, I grew up 20 miles south of there. Okay. In the woods. In In the woods. <laughs> Like, literally in the woods? Like, yeah. in a cabin in the woods? Uh, well, we did have some property right outside of the town mm -hmm. um, that was in the woods. It was, like, a trailer in a 40-acre forest. 40? That's a lot of land. Did you... It was homestead property. Okay. You know, back in the Homestead Act. Era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty... That's a, that's a lot. Did, did you, like, run around out there freely? I hated it. I hated the country so much. <laughs> <laughs> Is this why you're, you're such a jet setter now? Exactly. You go from this city to city? Like, I need to live in the city. Staying in Westons. Yeah, I need the noise. I can't, I can't deal with this quiet and, you know, and all the, like, trees and stuff. All the trees. <laughs> Get rid of them. I'll stay in an eco-friendly hotel, and that's like, as far like as we go. in the corners, okay, but, you know. <laughs> but we don't need a forest. I don't need a forest. I mean, like, we grew up, so, like, we had a, we had a house in town. Uh, it was, like, my parents, my grandparents' house and kind of passed down in generations and stuff. And then we had, my parents had some homestead property right outside of the city, about four miles outside of the city. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that, you know, it, 
he there was a, like a trailer out there that that was kind of the hunting shack. Mm-hmm. It started out kind of the hunting shack, and then eventually it was just parents, the house. Well, eventually my parents uh, after. Um, my brother and I moved out they eventually ended up building a house out there Mm. and so um, you know but we would go in the winter and have to like cut trees and haul wood into the city for the forest and things like that it was real country that's pretty country it was real country living (laughs) (laughs) did you ever go hunting out there yeah deer hunting you went deer hunting because you know there's two different deer hunting seasons there's rifle season and bow and arrow bow season. season yeah and so both of my parents were archery instructors. Really? Yeah. So, so you did bow and arrow? Yeah. You were an archer? I was pretty good, too. Really? Back in the day. Back in the day? Could you still do it? I, I, it would take some practice, but I'm sure I could still do it. Yeah, like muscle memory? You're <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah. yeah. Done. I have a pretty good aim, too. So be, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Should I? Is there a bow and arrow in here I need to be worried about? I feel. It's, do you feel like it's genetic a little bit too, other than the fact that your parents are archery instructors? You know, like the Korean Olympic team, the archery team is really good. It's really good now, yeah. Especially the women. Yeah, the yeah. women are like they were on top. I think this past yeah. summer. I don't know if it's genetic. Though. I remember once um, my parents. So like in the country property, uh-huh. there was a hill, and so there was one time my father was like hitting golf balls up the hill so that they'd roll back down. Uh huh. Um, and I think I had tried it and I wasn't very good at it and I got really bored really fast and I told him, I was like, dad, this is terrible. Um, Koreans don't play golf, <laughs> <laughs> which is a blatant lie. <laughs> Koreans love golf, but they do, but I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like 10 living oh, in the country, God. you know, <laughs> in the woods, in the woods with your bow and arrow. What did I know about Korea? <laughs> So, like, you did bow and arrow deer hunting. I, I actually didn't do the bow and arrow deer hunting. I did you, go in the rifle season. You did win the rifle season? Times, yeah. What kind of rifle did you have? Did your dad buy you a rifle? Like, your no. own rifle? No, no. No? We just had rifles. <laughs> no. How many, rifles. how many hunting rifles did you guys have out there? I don't know. Like, one for each member of the family? Maybe. You don't, you don't I know? don't really remember. No? Yeah. I, I didn't really do an inventory of our <laughs> Of the guns. <laughs> <laughs> was it like a family event? Did you go with your brother and your mom and your dad? Or was um, it just I think your one, dad? At least one year or a couple years, uh, my dad and my brother and I went out together. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So it was like a family bonding thing? I wouldn't say we bonded very much, but <laughs> we went out together. I you, think my brother and I would just sit there and complain that it was cold. Well, it probably was. Yeah, it was <laughs> cold and snowy, and we were just we just wanted to get back into town. It's Minnesota. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> would you rather be hunting or like chopping wood? <laughs> it's a hard call. It's <laughs> pretty tough. I would rather live in the city. <laughs> With like in the West End, <laughs> collecting your points. Yeah, exactly. Civil- <laughs> civilization. Civilization's nice. Yeah. And so was it just you and your brother in this small town? What was what was Park Ridge like? Park Rapids. Park Rapids. Yeah. Why did I say Park Ridge? What is that? I have no idea. All right. Park now Rapids. we're just making up stuff. We're just making things up now. <laughs> so what was Park Rapids like? Um, it's a small town. It's about 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my brother and I were pretty much, I think, the only minorities that lived in the town. Yeah. When we were growing up. 
Um, but it is also kind of, there's a lot of Native American like mm -hmm. reservations around that area as well. Um, but it's, uh, it's very white. <laughs> Park Rapid sounds white. Yeah. Like <laughs> inherently, you're just like, that sounds very white. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's also, I would say we're probably the biggest town within about a 50 mile radius. Mm -hmm. And so most of the towns around us were, you know, populations of somewhere between like, like there, there's a town 12 miles over, 12, six miles over with a population of 12. Um, and a lot of the towns around us were maybe like 300, 500 people, wow. maybe up to like a thousand people. Um, but you know, pretty small town culture and really spread out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it wasn't, there was... I think two Korean adoptees in Park Rapids. There was a couple in like the small towns around us. Um, there was actually three Korean adoptees in Park Rapids. I forget. There was this other girl. Oh um, yeah. I think two years younger than me. Hmm. And then, um, and there had been two Korean adoptees before us that were already graduated from high school. And they left. They were like, we're going to the West End. We're going to the exactly. cities. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by the West End. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love the West End. <laughs> no, I'm really happy they merged with Marriott, so now I get the points like merged. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, because I have all these different hotel programs, and part of me wants them all just to merge into one, so I can just collect all the things. <laughs> um, and then your brother is your brother older or younger? Older. I have an older brother. How, how much older is he? He's one year older. Okay. Yeah. So not too much older. And then what's he doing now? He lives in Minneapolis. He's a IT consultant. Oh yeah. Yeah. For one of these big Fortune 500 companies in uh, Minneapolis. For one of the, um, for Accenture. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a big company. I don't know what they do, but I know they have Everybody ads all over the airports. <laughs> With like people like Tiger Woods on them, they're like Accenture, and it's Tiger Woods like playing golf, and I'm like, I don't know what that <laughs> is. It a golf company? What are they doing? <laughs> I'm always so confused. That that is confusing. But it seems like it's like a like a big company, like one of these. It's a big company. Um, you know, it's a big consulting firm. So yeah. Yeah. They basically, you know, have a bunch of consultants um, in their roster, and then pitch different clients and projects and stuff. And I never like know that. what that means, a consulting. For, like, what do they consult on? Uh, so, uh, I mean, they're all IT consultants. Okay, yeah. so it's, like, specifically IT? IT pro projects. And so mm. my brother works mainly on, like, SAP programs and stuff, so. Cool. Don't I, ask me what I don't that know is. what that means. <laughs> I'm glad you don't either, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's as much as I know. <laughs> like, I know more about the North Korean nuclear program right, right, right. than I do about what my brother does. I know how many kilograms of plutonium you need for a nuclear weapon. <laughs> that's a lot. That's, that's, that's a lot of knowledge, I feel like. That's more than I know. <laughs> but I don't know how to explain SAP. <laughs> so if you know what SAP is, you should write in and I'll forward it to Jenny so that she knows. Or you could just ask your brother, I guess. Yes. <laughs> And so he's working in in Minneapolis. He, he made it to the big city in Minnesota, anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been there for several for several years. Yeah, yeah. I like Minneapolis. It's okay. Do you go there and visit a lot? Like, Not do you end up lot. going out to Minneapolis every now and then to visit your brother or your family? Not a lot. Not not nearly as much as China. No, I'm in China way more than I'm in Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, I'm in China way more than I 
am in like Maryland in the suburbs in Maryland. So yeah. it's just one of those things. Well, if you, if you mistakenly walk by your apartment and you don't know where it is for five yeah. minutes, I mean, that's, that's a good sign that yeah. you're away from home quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and so did you ever interact with these other, these other adoptees and your, the other three adoptees in your town? Yeah. I mean, I think we did sort of, and then like there was a, in, through some of like these Korean culture camps and stuff mm-hmm. that was really kind of burgeoning when I was young. And oh, so, yeah. Um, there was one Korean culture camp for adoptees uh, in, from northern Minnesota um, in uh, Brainerd that we used to go to like once a year as well. And so, you know, we did know, I did know several Korean adoptees mm-hmm. in northern Minnesota. I didn't really know the urban ones. <laughs> the, the urban ones. The urban ones. The one from urban areas. The fancy urban yeah. adoptees. Um, and I think the, the narrative is often very different between those that grew up in like the country and those that grew up in the cities. And yeah, stuff. I can imagine that. Yeah. Did you talk to any of the urban adoptees about like the differences between chopping yeah. wood and hunting seasons <laughs> and whatever they were doing in the city? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as, you know, as I got older and met more and more, we've had long, all the Minnesota people, I think eventually everyone knows everyone. (laughs) All the gazillion. Yeah, we're we're pretty well connected. Yeah, it's not like, I feel like the active adoptee community is not huge. Right. And so if you have like, if you're relatively well connected, like, you know, all the major players in the game. As as I'm learning with this show, it's like, oh yeah, have you heard of this person? I'm like, no, but now now I know. And then you realize they have like, you look them up on Facebook, and they're like, oh, you have 50 friends in common. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like everybody knows each other. Eventually, usually within about <clears throat> one or two degrees of separation. Yeah, we're all tied. It's crazy. Like the fact that I know your wife. <laughs> yeah, super weird. I had no idea. I was about to introduce you, and then I was like, oh, you two know each other. This is bizarre. <laughs> It, it was. It was a bit bizarre. Like, oh, really? <laughs> it was funny when I, like, last night when that happened, I was like, I see all the wheels turning, but I have no idea what's happening. I'm like, what is going on right now? <laughs> yeah. So, no, I think, yeah, we eventually all know each other, and especially those. I've been, I used to be way more active in the Korean adoptee community than mm-hmm. I am now, and partly just because I don't have a lot of time now. Sure. Um, but I still help out where I can and especially have sort of been following some of the more political movements and, mm-hmm. and especially late. those in Korea as well because, um, you know, trying to help where I can and help create contacts and stuff. Yeah. Because um, I, I, these days I deal with a lot of government officials and stuff, so mm-hmm. it's easier for me to help them navigate the system. Sure. You have more access and, yeah. yeah, you know a little bit of the ins and outs more than most people, I guess. Yeah. Well, so... When did you, was that kind of the start of your involvement with the adoption community? Was these kind of culture camps and everything in northern Minnesota? Yeah, I think so. Probably. <laughs> Where did it go from there? <laughs> um, you know, uh, so it started off with kind of the culture camps and then, you know, some of those people... The, the adoptees around my age, you know, we would go back and work at the camps and, mm-hmm. then, you know, we, we got really close. Um, and then after college, I moved to Minneapolis for a couple of years and then was like really entrenched in everything for a while mm-hmm. and was kind of more activist at that time and, um, and more connected. And then I moved out to DC, 
and then in DC, you know, got connected to the adoptees in DC, and then we started, mm. you know, they they had a small group, and we helped kind of expand the group, um, and then the group is pretty big now, I guess. ALDC. Yeah. It's pretty big. It's pretty it's, big now. It's pretty big. <laughs> They're doing a lot of work down yeah. there. Like, because the first dinner that I went to when I moved to DC, there was eight of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like, yeah, it's typical size. <laughs> it's grown a little bit. Yeah. And then DC has a, they have an interesting group also because of their proximity to the Hill and all the politics mm-hmm. and everything. So they're a little bit more, in terms of like activist communities by geolocation, they're, you know, they have much more opportunities to do work right. with political significance than, you know, we do even up in New York or AKASF has out in San Francisco, right. et cetera, or whatever groups out in Minnesota. What group is out in Minnesota? Um, AK Connection. AK Connection. Yeah. Yeah. That's the main one. How many members do they have? Is it still like... It's pretty big also. I, I imagine Minnesota actually would be pretty big. Yeah. You know, because that was, that was the <laughs> hotbed back in the it was. Know, 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. 90s. 70s, 80s mainly. So who were you adopted through there? Because most of... I feel like a lot of people come through Children's Home Society. Um, I actually went through Lutheran Social Services. Okay. And so Korean social services on the Korean side, LSS uh-huh. on, the, on the U.S. side. Um, you know, I grew up in a very Lutheran community. <laughs> I feel like that's big out there in Minnesota in the Midwest. Of course it Midwest. is, because it's, you know, a lot of Scandinavians and Germans. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, I think the Germans are much more the Missouri Synod Lutherans, and the Scandinavians are more evangelical Lutheran, the more progressives. Ah. Um, but yeah, it's it's big. <laughs> I don't. I don't know the difference between those two. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that's all right. That's a discussion for another day. <laughs> it's not going to be the focus of this show. No, no, no. <laughs> and then, so where do you end up going to school? Uh, for college, yeah. Um, I I actually went to a small private college in Iowa called Westmar University. Why, then, why a private school in Iowa? Um, I got a lot of scholarship money. <laughs> That's a good reason. And, you know, I got into bigger colleges, but I couldn't afford to move Mm -hmm. myself. And so, you know, I basically paid my own way through college and stuff. So it was basically as much as I could get financial support and, you know, be realistic about other funding. Plus, um, you know, at that time, they had a pretty robust, like, Asian studies program, which, you know, in that era, it wasn't as popular. Mm -hmm. And they had a... They had just started an exchange program with Iwa Women's University. Oh, yeah. And so I yep. ended up doing my sophomore year at Iwa Women's University. Nice. Was that your first time going back to Korea? Yeah. How was that? It was pretty wild. Was it intense? I had a great time. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good location, too, Iwa. Yeah. It's pretty good. Right in the middle of everything. And, it is. You know, it, was, it was before a lot of, you know... Before it became very common for every, all the Korean universities now have some kind of English language international program. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was fairly new. It wasn't very well known. The program was very small, so it was very intimate. Um, I think I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I went through the program with. Oh, nice. Um, But it was really interesting for me because I had, um, I used to dream about Iwa. Before I knew what it was. <laughs> like, in what way? Uh, so, I used to have, like, this recurring dream uh-huh. since I was probably about 13. 
Um, and I used to have it like, you know, three or four times a week. So it was so vivid to me of like, mm -hmm. it was always this recurring scene of like, um, coming to like this gate, it always looked like, it felt like a college campus. And there was uh, this big like iron gate that was open and there was a guard stand on the side and it was daylight and lots of people going in and out. And so um, my friends and I, in my dream, we would go out during the day, we would come back later, it would be dark and the gate would be closed. Mm. And we knew that we had to get back into, on, on back through the gate. Back on campus. Um, and the guard stand would be dark and so, so you had this big iron door and then a wrought iron fence. <laughs> so we would just jump over the fence and then like run back onto campus. And so my first time in at Iwa, we had a curfew of 11 o'clock every night. Right. Um, but uh, back in the 90s, um, so Iwa campus, the... So, so my friend was teaching me how to break curfew, basically. <laughs> so the building, the dorm that I was staying in had really, it was a really old building and it had, maybe I shouldn't be saying this on the record, it used to have like um, uh, windows on the ground floor and the first two windows didn't have screens in them. Mm. And so we would make sure someone kind of left it unlocked. <laughs> And then, basically, then we just had to get back on campus. Uh -huh. So we would go out during the day, and the front gate was this big iron door. The back gate was like a 10-foot concrete wall. Yeah. The front gate was a big iron door with a guard stand on the side, and we would leave during the day. We'd come back at night, um, you know, sometime like 3, 4 in the morning, and the <laughs> gates don't open until 6. Uh-huh. So the guards would be asleep, the gate would be closed, <laughs> But next to it was a wrought iron fence. It wasn't the concrete wall. Mm -hmm. There's a concrete wall now. But at that time, Because of you. Wasn't. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and so we would jump over the fence uh -huh. and like run back onto campus. And so the first time I'm like halfway over the fence going, holy shit, I've done this before. <laughs> like it was three like or prophetic. four times a week for the past like six years. You You've know? been practicing in yeah. your mind. So there was a lot of instances like that when I was in Korea, when I was you know, as a, as a sophomore in college, um, that were things that were very familiar to me. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I had, you know, dreamt them or I, like something was very familiar about them. That's so funny. Yeah. Where do you think that came from? Well, so I have this theory. <laughs> it's, it, it's, uh, so, so it started with, and this is, kind of a long convoluted story that, that's what we're here for <laughs> and so it started with um when i was like 13 this magic moment um it was a there was the local museum in mm -hmm. the used to you know bring in some offer some like classes once in a while and so one time they were doing a chinese calligraphy class mm. and so they brought in like two chinese guys they were probably in their late 20s, early 30s that were teaching Chinese calligraphy. And mm -hmm. so the first part of the class was this really long, boring slideshow about the history of Chinese calligraphy. <laughs> Grass style and simplified and blah, blah, blah. And I was dying. Um, <laughs> but then the second part of the class, they actually, you know, gave everyone some paper and brushes and, you know, everyone started off with the same character and then um, the one guy would go around, and depending on how, how you did on that character, he would give you another one. Mm. And so he basically gave me the character Pear Blossom. Um, 
And so I think I think they were actually the first like Asian men, like adults that I had met mm-hmm. um, and had like some interaction with. And so there was something kind of weird about it, <laughs> especially because at the end, I remember he shook my hand, but he held it too long and it really creeped me out. <laughs> Um, but that's the night when I started having these dreams. Huh. And then, so I had these dreams for about six years, and especially leading up to the time that I was actually going to Iwa, I had another series of dreams that basically, by the time I got to Iwa, I knew, I knew actually where my dorm was. I'd never seen pictures. Um, I knew exactly where my dorm was going through the back gates, because I had dreamt about driving in through the back gates and around and... I was like, oh, it's right there, right? And they're like, how do you know this? Um, and the area around, like, Ideate, like, the front, uh, around the front gates mm-hmm. um, of the shopping areas and stuff. Like, yeah. I knew all the streets. Like, I knew the campus almost inside and out um, before I got there. Hmm. And so um, then, <laughs> then when I ended up doing my birth family search, it was in various processes and went through some paper trails and was on tv and in some magazines and stuff and eventually i was in a documentary where we ended up going back to um Pusan and i had found the orphanage where i grew up mm-hmm. and then uh they had on record the police record uh or the police bureau where that had you know uh given me to the orphanage mm-hmm. and so we went and looked up those police records the original police record and then it told the story of the apparently when I was in um my mother when she was in labor went to a obstetrics clinic but she was in labor so they admitted her sort of immediately um the doctor delivered me then uh by the time she'd gone to another patient who was in labor and then by the time she came back to check on my mother, my mother was gone and it left mm. me there. So then the doctor turned me over to the police and then the police gave me to the city and the city gave me to the orphanage, which is how I ended up in the orphanage. And so it turns out that the clinic um, still existed mm. and the doctor who delivered me at that time then owned the clinic. Oh, wow. And so the clinic's name is also Iwa. And so in Pusan... Um, there's a clinic called the like the Iwa Obstetrics Clinic, uh-huh. and the doctor who delivered me was an Iwa graduate. And then, as so as I was talking to her, you know, it was the only time it happened at her clinic. She remembered the case. Um, she she told me she was like, oh yeah, of course I remember this. You know, like it was the only time it happened in my clinic, and your mother is the only patient who never paid her bill because they didn't know where to send right. bill. <laughs> And so I was like, well, don't bill me. I won't pay it either. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope they didn't. No, no, they, they didn't. They don't know my address either, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're never going to find me. <laughs> um, but then, so then I was thinking about it later and just kind of processing everything. And it hit me that um, Iwa means pear blossom. Huh. Yeah. So like all of these steps kept pointing to Iwa. And then, yeah, that was basically the the end of the trail for me in terms of what the information I could find without, like, my parents actually coming forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And so then I stopped having those dreams and everything kind of seemed like it was, everything fell into place. So it was like, from 
the time that you learn this Chinese character, yeah. which basically means Iwa. Yeah. <laughs> to the time you went to Iwa University. Yeah. It's all like it's like you saw your future it through was that all, character. Yeah. Just pushing me on a path. That's crazy. I know. <laughs> That's what was, like I said, the first time I jumped over that fence, I was like, God damn, what is going on? <laughs> oh, man. Did you, so, this is going to be a weird question. Mm. Have you ever read or watched the, I don't know, I guess it's a documentary film, A Brief History of Time? No. It's a Stephen Hawking book, right? And so he opens the book and the movie with this question. He says... Why can we remember the past, but we can't remember our future? It's like, from that, so that's the beginning of the book. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what? Your mind just like explodes for a minute. <laughs> but things like that, I, I think about like, yeah, it's weird when like deja vu happens. Because yeah. I think it's like totally real. And like stories like that are just incredible to me. Because it's like, is it something like through this character and through these weird coincidences from your birth up through now that's like... Like, you weirdly somehow remember your future? Well, isn't it... Did it feel like a memory of, like, the future when you dreamt it? Or a memory when you dreamt it? Yeah, it was vivid. (laughs) It was so vivid, so clear. And it felt so normal. Yeah. Like, it wasn't a, what is this? It was like, oh, I'm walking around the streets, and this is... I know all of these things. But I think it's, um... Was it Plato? Has his... So, I read this book once. It's called, um... The Soul's Code, In Search of Character and Calling. It's by James Hillman. He's this uh, um, psychologist. Mm -hmm. And so the first half of the book, he's talking about kind of philosophy and and setting up the story. And the second half of the book is all case studies. And so he bases this premise a little bit off of Plato's theory of the realm of souls. And so in this, uh, basically, like, you know, souls don't die. They go into kind of this limbo mm-hmm. um, in this realm of souls until, until they're inspired with purpose. And then, then the conditions are created for them to be birthed again. But that the birthing process is so traumatic that people forget um, what their purpose was. And so in addition to being birthed, they're also sent with them a, a daemon or a guardian angel to help kind of point them back to their path and their purpose. And um, the second half of the book, when he goes through case studies, it's basically things like, you know, Billie Holiday, when she was three, she was supposed to do a talent show and she was supposed to dance. And right before she went on stage, she's like, no, I'm going to sing instead. You know, and, and things like that, where people sometimes it's just so like done you know like yeah this is what i'm supposed to do and other people it takes longer and longer and longer mm-hmm. for them to figure out what their purpose was and then once they do then they come to you know some kind of conclusion but you know i think for me when i was uh when i was reading that you know it really kind of resonated with a lot of the the path i had been on um until until i was like 20 and then, what, and then what path did you set for yourself? And then it took yourself? me a while to figure out what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> so you reached that culminating point of yeah. like, I've dreamt all about this. I had a, I had a midlife crisis at 20. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, then needed to do some soul searching of my own to figure uh-huh. out, now what? <laughs> well, how long did it take till you decided to start, uh, you know, 38 North and all that? What was the path that way? Uh, well... 
you know, like I, I always knew I wanted to work on kind of Korean issues somehow. Like mm-hmm. when I, when I was adopted, I was three when I was adopted. So I was say I was old enough to know better and young enough not to remember anything bad. So like I always knew I was Korean. I always thought of Korea as home. Mm-hmm. Um, like I always wanted to be more involved and, you know, go to Korea and like deal with Korea. Um, and so, like, my major in undergrad was, like, East Asian Studies and International Relations, and then, but then I, I moved to Minneapolis, <laughs> and there's just no jobs that deal with, like, East Asia in Minneapolis. Yeah. And so, you know, I worked in advertising for a couple years, and um, did a lot with, like, kind of organizational development and public relations and, you know, corporate communications and things like that, and then when I moved to dc then you know then started working on more political stuff right um but then still really wanted to do more on korea and so mm-hmm. i ended up going to korea for a couple years teaching english just to like be in korea um and it was a lot of fun <laughs> a lot of fun <laughs> uh, but then you know by the time i finished a couple years in Korea, I had a much clearer vision of what I wanted to do and mm-hmm. how to, what those next steps had to be in order for me to do what I wanted to do. So as soon as I came back, then I went to grad school and got my master's in international affairs and then um, happened upon a couple of positions um, that, so uh, I actually volunteered at that time to intern. I was old, <laughs> but I was like, Old with, like, you know, a decade of work experience and stuff and help build organizations. And so here I apply for an internship, and they're like, why would you intern here? (laughs) Um, But it was at Freedom House, and I was working at the Human Rights in North Korea project. Oh, wow. And so I really wanted to work on Korea issues. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at that time, I had been reading some, like, North Korean uh, defector uh, biographies and things. And so I was very interested, and I was like, you know, I'm willing to do this just for the experience and the exposure. Um, and then they ended up hiring me as like a consultant because uh, they were like, you're not an intern. <laughs> like, I know, but I just want to be here. And they're like, you can be here, but we want to pay you. Yeah, I'm like, that, that's okay too. <laughs> like a proper adult. I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> and so, but it turns out that the director of that project then is the director of my institute now. And so he oh, left wow. that project cool. to be the director of the U.S. Korea Institute when it was founded. Yeah. Um, and so then after I finished my master's, then he brought me over um, to the institute to help kind of work and build, help build that nice. into something more concrete. And there's like a lot of pretty high level people over there, right? Wasn't like a Stephen Bosworth over there? Yeah, so a bunch of people. Steve was our, um, Ambassador Bosworth was our chairman. Our founding chairman was Don Oberdorfer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a former Washington Post correspondent who wrote the book, uh, The Two Koreas, which is like the main textbook for, you know, um, Korean history, modern Korean history. Uh, we, you know, we work with a lot of, you know, high level people. Yeah. So you have a lot of, a lot of political connections and ends in all kinds of different places. It comes with responsibilities, though, you know? Well, as it should. Yeah. You can't just have access to, yeah. you know, former ambassadors and Washington Post correspondents and yeah. all these high-level officials without some kind of responsibility, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so do you feel like you've 
since found a renewed sense of purpose in your life after your jumping of the fence and <laughs> completing that purpose? Yes. Uh, you know, I do. I feel, you know, like where I am now is kind of where I've always wanted to be, mm-hmm. um, but didn't know it existed because it didn't exist. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we just sort of created it. Um, and I think a lot of the jobs that I've had over the years, um, like I haven't applied for a job since I was 22. Everything has been sort of an interesting opportunity or, you know, you know, being able to recognize, you know, those moments where, where people are willing to try something different, Mm -hmm. you know, so most of the positions have been kind of created for me because I didn't quite fit what they were looking for, but they didn't really know what they were looking for. And so usually you can negotiate and talk about what else this position could be doing and, you know, what are they missing in that Mm. process. Yeah. I think that's important because I feel like a lot of people kind of get stuck sometimes, like being like, you know, why isn't this happening or why isn't that happening? They don't, they're kind of blind to the opportunities that are before them. Yeah. And so it's like you have to recognize those and jump on them even if they don't like you said quite fit but you can kind of negotiate or wiggle your way into it (laughs) and make it work for you yeah because it sounds like you've had some pretty awesome opportunities yeah and and a lot of it it requires being able to take risks and being kind of entrepreneurial about your career as well Mm -hmm. because i i don't believe that a straight i always tell my interns this now and some of the students that i work with is that I think, especially in political circles, um, and especially in Korean educational system, career is a linear path. Right. So, you know, if you don't do this step or this step by this age, you're already behind. And Mm -hmm. it's like, how can you be already behind? You haven't even graduated college yet. Right. You don't know what you want to do. You just, people have been putting expectations into your head. Mm -hmm. And you think the system, you know the system works this way, but that's the system. Yeah. You know? If you if you're constantly looking for jobs or chasing, so is you know a million other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you if you allow yourself the opportunity to try different things, take a couple of risks. A lot of times, you know, the skills that you build and the the experiences that you gain from that are you know as long as you understand, you're always learning and always you know building skills. And as long as every step is progressive. Um, in terms of moving forward in your own personal goals and mm-hmm. professional goals, then, um, then yeah, linear paths are overrated. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I've recognized that, I was thinking about this this past week, actually, things that you think are, like, weird or you're wasting your time or you're spinning your wheels, like, doing what you perceive at the time is, like, nothing. Yeah. Or wasting time. Like, later you're like, oh, no, there was value there and I just couldn't apply it until now. Right. And all of a sudden this makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, well, even, like, 38 North, for instance, you know, a lot of the people that work in D.C. have had very kind of linear careers. Yeah. You know, they did... Yeah, well, D.C. is full of those. Yeah, in politics, and then they did a master's in, like, international affairs or politics Mm -hmm. or something. So they have a very kind of academic experience, or they go into government. Um, But it's still kind of a limited skill set and a limited kind of worldview on things. And so when when we tried to start 38 North, um, you know, we did it in-house on a shoestring budget, 
And like the reason we were able to make it work was because because I do have a background in advertising and branding and you know public relations and corporate communications. So, right. You know, like not only the political content and the academic content, but being able to actually create the platform for it mm-hmm. and you know deal with media and deal with you know um, branding standards sure. and things like this are not necessarily skills that you would learn on a pure political path. Right, right. So, you know, once you kind of amass all of those different skill sets and and can see opportunities in which you can apply them, then, you know, you're further ahead than a lot of your competition. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's a well-rounded individual <laughs> that you are. So what's, what's next for you? Continuing on with 38 North and all your different projects? Yeah, I think, you know, we're, I think we're really on the verge of being bigger (laughs) oh yeah so we have to figure out how to do that (laughs) Uh, because what do you mean bigger um i don't know it's gotten so you know 38 north has gotten so much traction it also builds a lot of expectation Mm -hmm. um and so we're constantly trying to keep up now where like i said when we started we used to publish about one article every two weeks and then we grew to about one per week Mm -hmm. um but these days we publish maybe two or three per week. Um, but I edit everything. I'm especially like the final editor on everything. Yeah. And so trying to find time to do that is like, oh my god. <laughs> Again, these strategic choices of I could either sleep for half an hour or try and finish editing this. And sometimes these days, um, the sleep is winning. <laughs> As it should. Um, so, you know, really, we're kind of in that growing pains stage now where we have to make more strategic choices in terms of if mm. we want to continue to expand um, our offerings, we have to also grow um, in order to build the capacity to do so. Yeah. So that's what we're kind of dealing with now. Okay. And people can find all of this information at 38north.com? Dot org. Dot org? Yeah. Uh, and where else can they find your various projects that you're working on? Um, so my institute, it's uskoreainstitute.org. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, 38north.org, uskoreainstitute.org. And both of them, we're, we're in the process of revamping both websites. So hopefully in January, it'll look better. <laughs> I mean, when we started it, it, again, we were just a small operation. Right, so yeah. it still looks a, a little bit first generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're trying to look more adult <laughs> get a little upgrade yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and can people find you on social media or anything uh, um they can try <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just leave it at the 38 north and us i am on facebook um you know and especially if we have mutual friends i'm pretty easy to find uh, i also am on twitter it's uh jenny town but the e is a three and the o is a zero very like hacker of you. <laughs> well, it's because Jenny Town was taken. <laughs> How dare she? So, so yeah, the Jenny Town. But my picture is there, so you can tell which one I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so find you on Facebook. Check out your Twitter. Yeah. All right. And then where where is your next trip going to be? I'm not sure. Most likely, I'll probably be, have to go back to Korea in January. It sounds like. Ooh, cold. Yeah. Have fun. Have fun out there in the cold. Dress warm. 
<laughs> well, thanks for taking time out of your very busy schedule and not sleeping for another half hour to <laughs> elect to come on the show. It's okay. You brought me coffee. So I did. <laughs> well, after last night, I felt like we, we both needed coffee. <laughs> and I appreciate I know we've been trying to get this going for a while yeah. now, so I'm glad we could finally make it happen. Yeah, I'm glad we're able to make this work. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> Bye. All right, that was my conversation with Jenny Town. Again, I want to thank Jenny Town for coming on the show. I'm glad we finally got it to work. I'm glad we finally got her busy schedule under control for at least one afternoon so her and I could sit down in a New York hotel in the Element uh, and and her to collect some points and for us to chat. And what a way to end the year. What a way to end the first year of the Rambler podcast. Is that awesome? Is that stories and exposure to information that you've never heard before, heard, had, heard before? I think it's awesome. I think that was a great conversation. And uh, I'm really happy that, you know, people are out there doing the hard work. Okay, because God knows I'm not. Anyways, I want to thank you guys for listening this whole past year. You made it. You made it a whole year with me in your ear hole. Week after week, relentlessly, for hours at a time. Do you know, if you have listened to every episode of The Rambler so far, you have spent literally more than two straight days with me, either in the car or while you're working at your cubicle or on the treadmill or, or walking the dog or doing laundry or whatever. Those are the situations I think that are that are, are pretty good for listening to the show. You know, it's not a... It's, it's a long show. I get it. So you could like kind of do other things. Uh, and this is kind of playing in the background. You could hear these awesome stories. And I hope that you appreciate the stories that I've been able to, uh, to get for you guys. All right. I know I appreciate every single one of the guests that have come on the show. And I want to thank every single one of them for making this first year doing the show a success. I have heard stories that I could have never imagined when I started doing this podcast. When I thought I was going to start this podcast, uh, I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know how popular it was going to be. I didn't know what kind of people were going to be willing to come on the show and share their stories. And I certainly couldn't have imagined any of the stories, half of the stories, any of these stories that I've, I've heard so far. And I look forward to hearing all of the stories that you guys are going to bring me and bring to the larger adoptee and adoption community in the future. And I want to thank you guys for hanging with me thus far. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. There were probably like two or three times this year I was uh, thinking about throwing in the towel. But I keep getting uh, some pretty pretty positive feedback from people saying that they want to come on the show, that they like hearing the stories on the show, and that uh, that, that, that helps them, it helps them out. And I think those are the emails and the messages that mean the most to me is when I hear that, uh, that it's helped them, that it's helped them through some tough times. All right. And I hope it's helped you. I do. Uh, if you want to be on the show or you know somebody who would be good on the show and you uh, want them on the show, please, please get them in contact with me. You get in contact with me. You get in contact with me. Uh, again, my email is therambleradhd at gmail.com. My Twitter, follow me on Twitter. You can retweet my tweets. You can like my tweets. You can do all those things to my tweets. I'll respond to as many of those as I can. And that is at the Rambler ADHD on Twitter. And you can always, of course, like my Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Rambler ADHD. 
Uh, if you like the music you heard here today, then you will like them. They are The Bell at Needle Drop Records and also a collective effort, which you are listening to right now. Ready? Here's the last chord. And I look forward to that every week. Uh, and a collective effort. They're on SoundCloud as well. Uh, and you can always check out uh, this podcast if you're a fan of podcasts on iTunes, on Google Play, and wherever you get podcasts. We're hosted by Podbean. You can check them at podbean.com. And the latest two episodes are always up on SoundCloud. Uh, anyways, I, again, thank you guys very much for listening this entire year. I appreciate it. We will be back in 2017 with more material for you. I hope you guys have had a, uh, I hope 2017 is a much better year than 2016 was besides this podcast going decently well. I, I, I wasn't real hot on 2016 as a year. I don't know if you could tell. Uh, it's been pretty rough, pretty rough. Lost a lot of great artists out there, and uh, we're not even going to talk about the election right now, but hasn't been the greatest year. Hasn't been the greatest year. Uh, unfortunately, we're, we're missing a lot of people who aren't going to be around anymore. Uh, I know I am in my life. I'm sure that maybe you know somebody in your life. And of course, there are always people who are going through some tough times, and this is a hard time of year to go through some tough times. So if you know anybody in need, please lend a helping hand and uh, help them out. Uh, in any case, practice some self-care too. If you need help, reach out and, and ask for it, okay? And take care of yourself because right? I appreciate you and I want you to hear more stories from wonderful people next year in 2017. You guys have a great holiday season. You have a happy and merry whatever it is you celebrate. And regardless, I hope you have a happy new year. Hopefully 2017 brings a lot of awesomeness that we haven't seen this past year and then maybe we'll make up for it who knows who knows you guys have a happy mary i will uh talk to you guys next year happy 2017 see you